Hello listeners and welcome to what is now the fourth season of Pebble in the Pond podcast. We appreciate your support throughout the first three seasons uh, as we get our listenership up towards that 16,000 mark. Uh, thank you everybody, we appreciate it and um, yeah, and what a privilege it is to bring you uh, these stories from amazing people. We are here and we are aiming to create a ripple for change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I am the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year our association hosts several leading mental health conferences that allow us the chance to meet and connect with the most fascinating and, and accomplished people in the mental health space. Listen in as we go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand. From lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics, leading community organisations and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain content, themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering for some listeners. If you feel you need any assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. The death of Hannah Clark and her three young children in February 2020 on a footpath in Camp Hill of Brisbane opened our collective eyes to the devastating failures of authorities to protect victims of domestic abuse from being murdered. Over the past 20 years, coercive control has been defined, documented and legislated against in Britain and in Australia, calls for coercive control to be criminalised are being addressed by every state and territory legislature. This week's podcast guest, Dr. Amanda Gearing, has been at the front line for changing how our nation addresses and responds to coercive control. With a PhD in global investigative journalism, Amanda's reporting over 30 years has led to legislative changes, Senate, uh, Senate inquiries, commissions of inquiry and other reforms. Her work has also been recognised by many industry awards, including a Walkley Award in 2012. Amanda's reporting on the murder of Hannah Clark and her children in February 21 raised public awareness that there is a very strong correlation between perpetrators exerting high levels of coercive control over a partner and subsequently killing their intimate partner and or children. Stay tuned as I speak with Amanda about her journalistic experiences and what actions she has taken to change the way we approach coercive control. Hello, podcast listeners, and thanks for joining us today on another podcast. With me today, it gives me great pleasure to introduce to you Dr. Amanda Gearing. Welcome, Amanda. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, Sam. No, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to have you and reading all the interesting stuff that you've been doing over the course of your career, professional career as a journalist, 30 years or so. I guess where I'd like to start is asking you what inspired you to get into journalism to start with? Where did it come from? It came from a basic interest in human people. And it was specifically sparked because I was at university, at the University of Queensland, and the editor of the Newcastle Herald happened to give a guest lecture to a News Writing 101 class back in 1980. And what he told us about was a series of investigative stories he had done with adopted children who had by then become adults, and they were on a quest to find out who were they who they were, to answer the question, who am I? And the research that he did and the stories he wrote led to the foundation of an organisation called Jigsaw, 
which helps adoptive children and adults find their birth parents. And when I listened to that, the impact of that on me was that I thought, well, if journalists can do that and make a difference in people's lives, that's what I'd like to do. And I didn't have very much understanding of what the media was or what a journalist was or even what a news agency was. I thought a news agency was like the shop down the road that sold papers. And my understanding of the news was fairly basic too. As a child from the bush, I had thought that when we heard about guerrilla warfare, somebody had been very, very clever in training guerrillas to shoot with guns. And I thought that was a maybe a great idea. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so I had some, some very naive ideas and all of those have been just demolished along the way. Isn't that incredible? I think what's important and what I teach students of mine when I teach a university is that you don't have to wait until you're 40 or 50 to start making a change. I was a cub reporter way out west of Queensland in Mount Isa. It was a very tiny paper, only had four or five journalists. And there were things that could be done. For example, I was sitting on the Concurrishire Council and they had a problem with going broke. They had accidentally paid some of the people far too much money, well above award, and the consequence of that was that they ended up sacking 60 workers who were their entire outside workforce. So everybody who worked hard in the sun and did the hard slog got the sack. So I phoned my local government lecturer from UQ because I didn't know what to do and I said, hey, Doug, This is what's going on. What do we do about this? He said, get an arbitration commission hearing up there. So they had the arbitration commission, as it was in those days, which set wages, left Canberra for the first time it ever had left Canberra because there were more, too many people really to bring to Canberra. So Mm. they came to Cloncurry. They had a hearing and at the end of the day they sacked the entire council and reinstated the jobs of the 60 in the outside workforce and made an administrator to look after the council. I was about 23 when that happened. And so it started to help me to understand that it's not my job to make the change. I couldn't give the workers their job back. That's yeah. more than I can do. But what I can do is hold the torch. And that's, that's the job of the investigative journalist and any journalist for that matter is to hold the torch on the problem so that whoever's job it is to fix that problem is alerted to the problem and fixes the problem. Wow, so that was your first experience in that at such a young age, 23. That then inspired you to, to then... Well, it just means that you, have a, you just have a go at whatever the problem is. Yeah. So there was another problem where there was a Brazilian cattle baron. He wanted to blow up a gorge system, which we now know as Lawn Hill National Park. Oh, wow. And, and I thought that's not such a great idea. Joe Bielke-Peterson thought it was a great idea, but I thought, no, Joe. And so I had a talk to the local conservation group, as they were in those days. We wrote about what the significance of Lawn Hill Gorge was, and within a few months we managed to get Lawn Hill Gorge gazetted as a national park. That's so incredible. it was saved. The cattle were taken away. 
and the gorge remains and, and all the historic cave paintings and, and things there which are very, very old. So the, the problems arise for different things. Throughout your career, you've obviously had some really challenging stories or jobs that have popped up. What's been some of the most challenging ones that you've worked on? I think the most challenging one would have to have been the expose in the early 2000s that churches and other institutions were knowingly protecting pedophiles within institutions and the scandal of the child abuse in the churches and the schools, specifically church schools, was a major problem and the case that I covered that exposed all that had an involvement from the person that in those days who was the Governor-General and in the end he had to resign. So he would be my biggest scalp, but I didn't certainly start with him. I started back in the Cloncurry council days with people paying people the wrong amount of money or someone wanting to blow up a gorge system to water their cattle, things like that. Yeah, the injustices, mm. yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it must be such a privilege, like a, it's such a proud thing to be a part of where you get to go in there and affect change and see the impact that it has on people, communities. I don't necessarily feel proud of what I've done. It's always come with a huge amount of personal challenge yeah. because I've raised four kids as well. So my children have paid a high price for me being a journalist and having to respond every time someone crashed their plane on a Friday afternoon without thinking, who is going to cover this? And, and it has to be me and my kids and taking my children to fires and to murder scenes and them being exposed to bits of body being found in the creek yeah, by someone well. walking their dog. So my children have had a bit of an early wake-up on some pretty serious adult matters. They're all okay, but, yeah. but it's not something I would have chosen for my children to be exposed to. Yeah, I didn't think about that, the impact of the family. Like you mentioned, you point out that it that can really affect the family, hey? Yeah, so there's, there's always a price to pay, but I think there is, at, at base, what I try to do is to pursue truth, whatever the truth of a situation is, and, and often with investigative journalism, you have to chase the money, you have to chase people who don't want to talk, and you have to find who can talk, who will talk, who knows, and who will give you the information, and then you find a way to get the information on the record so that that person is not at risk. So, for example, when I did the investigations in England and Wales, the whistleblowers over there were too scared to talk to any journalist in Britain. They could only feel safe enough to talk to someone in Australia that they were confident was not connected with anybody who would know who they were. And so then I could do the investigation from Australia and write it back to England and expose a scandal there that could have been written any time in the previous 40 years, but it hadn't been because the whistleblowers were too scared. So that's what I do. So my, my PhD is in global investigative journalism and how journalists need to be able to collaborate between countries because crime and corruption is international. It truly is international. 
And unless the journalists do bite the bullet and and collaborate together, then the rest of us can't adequately fight the corruption that is there. Mm. You know it exists, but until you hear about it and, and the risks that are involved, even to yourself as a journalist, I mean, surely that's a risk. Yeah, it's a risk. I've had plenty of death threats in my time. At the time, I didn't take them all that seriously because what I was intent upon was getting answers. And when the death threats started coming, I realised that I was getting close to where I needed to be. And people would write to me and say, keep going, Amanda. You just need to follow this one and follow that one and ask this question and ask that question. And people were behind me. And so it, rather than dissuade me or make me feel scared, I might have felt scared, but I didn't stop because I knew I was so close and I was. I mean, we talk about being able to talk to somebody about what they've seen, the whistleblowers and whatnot, but probably as we segue into the coercive control and the domestic violence stuff as well, I mean, it's a similar thing, isn't it? So people, victims, feeling powerless, feeling terrified to come forward and share their stories. What got you into the coercive control investigation in the first place? It was a group of women who I have been assisting quietly for about the last 12 years. This spun out of the previous investigation into the child abuse scandal and that's because the pedophiles did get taken out of schools, churches, etc., scout groups and all the rest of it, but they didn't vaporise. What they did was find other places to get access to children and the weakest link in that chain is the Family Court of Australia where anybody with a biological connection to a child can virtually get it and therefore it is a risky place to be and people know this. So this group of women are all women who have children, who have reported to those mothers that they've been sexually assaulted by their biological father but the family court has handed them over to live with or to spend time with that alleged perpetrator. Now for those women to hand over those children by court order in this country to a person that the child has said has done terrible things, in fact crimes, to them and not have any power and be risk being thrown in jail if they don't do it is very, very scary. That's horrific. It is horrific. And so it's this group of women who came to me with that particular problem and that came into focus when Hannah Clark was murdered and her children along with her because family court was involved in that case. Hannah had escaped with the children. She was free. She was safe for 50 days and then they were all killed. Now... She would have spoken to lawyers and they would have said, you have to share the children. And if you don't share the children, the court could hand them over to him. And she would have been terrified of that. So many women are. And so she, she did hand them over. We know she did hand them over and he used that. He used her presence in his house and, he, and appealed to her saying, I don't know how to cook XYZ food. Please come and cook for the children. And she 
And so he got her back in the house again. That is coercive control. She wanted to look after her children. She knew they were at risk. She went in there risking her life. I don't think she had confidence to leave the house. I think she was terrified to leave the house because she did say she believed she was going to be killed. She went to the point of even arranging with her parents that she needed to change her will so that they would be the custodians and guardians of the children when she was dead. She was quite confident she would be killed. But what she didn't see was that he was going to kill the children as well. So this is all very scary stuff. So when, when Hannah, the, Hannah died, all the women in the group that I help rose up. They were terribly distressed. And what I didn't know about them, some I did, but I didn't realise it was all of them, all of them had stayed in a dangerous domestic violence household because they thought they had to protect the children. And it wasn't until they had survived an attempted murder that they finally left. And all of them had that story. They had not even told me the story. So as soon as Hannah died, they all said, Amanda, you have to do something. Now, do something is a pretty, like that's a pretty Pretty blank canvas. (laughs) What am I going to do here? How do I stop this thing going on? So what I did was put on my my journalist hat on one side and my academic hat on the other side. So I am a working journalist, but I'm also a working academic. So I put my academic hat on because I wanted to look up intimate partner homicide and what do we really know about it? And has anybody, specifically has anybody got any heat and light around this issue and worked out what can be done? Or do we have to start from the beginning and invent the wheel here? And what I found was in the UK, they had already done 15 years of wheel making. And by 2015, they had got laws to make coercive control, this pattern of coercive behaviour and controlling behaviour, a crime. Now, in Australia, domestic abuse is not a direct crime. So if a person attacks somebody who they are not in an intimate relationship with, the criminal code applies. But if they attack someone who they're in an intimate relationship with, they are, that is a domestic, it comes under the civil code. It is not within the jurisdiction of police to investigate it like they do a crime. So we do see a lot of posters and there is this big mismatch here. We see mm. big posters in the walls of police stations and big words saying stop domestic violence splattered across yeah. the wall and you think, oh, my goodness, that's, they're, they're taking this very seriously. But, in fact, they don't do anything for most of what is dangerous. What is dangerous is control. Certainly... Bruised eyes and broken bones are a problem, obviously, but they are not as highly correlated with intimate partner homicide and killings as the control. Intimate partner homicide has a 100% correlation with coercive control. So you looked at Britain. They already had this established over some years. Already had the laws. Yes, they had the laws, and I'm going, well, why did Hannah die? Yeah. 
Why haven't we done this already? What is going on? Was Britain leading? Is, is Britain leading it in, as far as coercive control goes and implementation of policy? It's a bit line ball. There is a, a psychologist in the UK, in the US, who has written a book, Evan Stark. There is also the on-the-ground research was done by a criminologist who was part of New Scotland Yard. Her name is Laura Richards. And Laura was attending and solving homicides. And what she wanted to try to do after being at many of them was try to wind the clock back and work out how do we prevent this happen rather than keeping mopping up all the time. And so she took it upon herself to talk to the friends and family to find out what was going on in those relationships before the murder. And what she did was collate information from them. And as I now know, it's the same story. Every single time it is the same story. So once I found out what coercive control looked like, at the same time I was also reading the coverage about what had been happening to Hannah. And those were matching up. So... She was being highly controlled by this man and so she was doing, he was doing things like controlling everything she did, who she spoke to, where she went, what she wore, when she slept, when she woke, what she ate, when she worked, all the money, everything was under his control. Yeah. It was his way or the highway except there was no highway, there was no way out, Okay. So what I did then very early on was to write a story using, because the clerks were not talking to journalists at the time, they were in crisis mode, but what I used was the coverage, the information from the coverage, and I put that side by side with all the coercive control indicators and I realised that if we'd understood all this stuff, Anna would not have died. So that was really... The lights went on for me that we don't have to question, was this another man who snapped? Men don't snap. Was this another man who's... These murderers spend a lot of time controlling everything that the victim does. So they're not like normal men. They, they are criminals and this is what they do. There's not a lot of them. But when we find them, we need to recognise them as very dangerous people. So I wrote that story and that was about 10 days or two weeks after Hannah died. So all this happened very quickly. And what happened was readers who were in situations like Hannah phoned me up. I had 20 in the first two weeks saying, Amanda, I'm just like Hannah. I'm going to be killed. Wow. So that really got my attention. The first one, I was taken off guard. I didn't expect that to happen so directly. And I didn't, I'm not a counsellor, I'm not a psychologist, but I knew that ethically I have to work out, is this person just scared because what had happened was still ringing in our ears or is she actually at risk of being killed and no one's protecting her like they failed Hannah, we have to know that answer right now. So what I did was use the same coercive control questions from the UK Home Office Legal Guidance, which guides what is a, law, what is a crime and what is not a crime. I asked her those questions. She said yes to almost everyone. 
Now I found that that is very common, that it's either all or nothing with this. And because we got to the end of that, it showed me that she was under very high control. That puts her in the danger category, but it doesn't mean she's going to be murdered. What we need to do then is add on another piece of research from Jane Monckton-Smith, who has investigated 372 intimate partner homicides. And what she's done is look at the antecedents to all those killings, and she's made eight stages that these killers go through, and it starts before the relationship with the dead woman. It starts with the previous relationship. So the first indicator, and it's common with every single one, he doesn't kill the first one he loses. He kills the second or subsequent woman. But there's still a pattern of that coercive control. There's still a pattern. So he coercively controls one and he loses her, and then he quickly, so this this is the red flags that we now need to understand, he will form a second or subsequent relationship. He will choose her. He will initiate the relationship. He will love bomb her, so the relationship will develop very quickly. He will demand a demonstration of her commitment to him, which also becomes a hook in her so she can't get away, and then he will control her and become very possessive and jealous. So those hooks can be quite sinister. It, will be, it might be taking her somewhere far away from all her family and friends, like come with me to Darkest Brew or something. Or in the case of Baxter, he got her pregnant and what he demanded from her was that she have an abortion. Now, that was against her will. She was only 19 when she'd met him. And, and it meant that forever after he could attack her over that and as a mother he could say, you're a terrible mother, you killed your first kid. So there was, there's always this element, as anecdotally in the cases I've spoken to, There's always this element that that demonstration of commitment that they demand is also the hook. So it's quite sinister. It is. On one hand, it's really good now that you can see a pattern of these things that have been formed. How did those eight steps then relate? So you went through this with the 20 people that contacted you. Yes. So, So I asked them, so once... We have to have an ethical approach to all this, so I use my journalistic ethics, but this was really pretty cutting-edge stuff. It's, it's scary stuff. So what I did, I asked the permission of the people to record because I knew that we were cutting new ground here. This is research. So I asked their permission up front to record. I recorded that first section on coercive control. Then I asked them, I explained what the next eight questions are, is how far they've moved towards killing you. Are you willing to answer these questions? If you don't want to, that's okay. And all of them said they want to. Now, because this is quite confronting, I also asked them after we'd answered all the questions whether that was too confronting for them or how they felt about having answered those quite scary questions. And to my surprise, they all said, I am so relieved. And I said, why are you relieved? They said, because someone knows what I'm going through. I am not crazy. Someone understands. Someone understands what's happening to me. All of these women had sought police protection. Prior to talking to you? Prior to talking to me. None of them had got it. All of them were tertiary educated. So there was an airline executive, a couple of 
commercial lawyers, a diplomat, project engineer. These were all smart women. Now, they had all complained to police about the risk to their life and they could not even get a domestic violence protection order. When I spoke to them about that next, the eight stages, all of them went right to stage eight. In other words, they had all survived attempted murders. There was a strangling, a stabbing, a lethal overdose, all sorts of different things, but they had all survived an attempted murder. Now, what I then realised was actually they are at risk. I'm a journalist. I can't protect them. So what I did was write down those questions, fill in the answers and send it to their local police commissioner in their state because these were national. And once the police commissioner had a risk assessment on their desk saying this woman is at risk of being murdered, they detached the local policeman to actually go and protect them. So instead of people trying to get protection and not getting it, all of a sudden police had accountability and they just did it. And the only difference was the fact that they had the risk assessment on their desk rather than the victim just confronting a police and saying, hey, I need help. They actually had documentation, the different steps and their answers that demonstrated that they were actually They needed possible. protection. Yeah. And, and it meant that the, the police commissioner had no way of escaping. There's an investigative journalist watching over his shoulder. If this woman is harmed or killed, he knows that I know that he's been told she's at risk. So he has to tell his police officers, look after this one. And it's working. I do two or three of them every week at the moment. Is that right? Could you publish your story, I assume, in, the, in, in a major newspaper? The Guardian, yes. Yep. So the original story saying that Hannah didn't need to die if we had understood this stuff, that story ran in The Guardian. And then six months later, Lloyd and Sue Clark were willing to do an interview with me and I did exactly the same as what I had done with the 20 women. I did the, the UK legal guidance, coercive questions. control questions, mm-hmm. and then I followed it on with the eight, with the eight, steps. eight steps leading to homicide. Now, for them, that was highly confronting because normally these questions are done with people who are alive to do a risk assessment. But in the case of Lloyd and Sue, they knew where this was all going. So it's like watching this slow train wreck and not being able to stop it. So what they realised by the time they got to the end of all that interview was if only we had known she would not be dead. That incident and you know where you were when you heard that news. You know exactly what you were doing when you saw this come on the TV because it just gave you chills up and down your spine that you do you wish upon nobody there were a few things that made that killing stand out from the killings that happen every week and that is that it was in a public place people could take photographs of it as it was happening it was a terrorist style murder Mm. there were children trapped in their seat belts being burnt to death And there were bystanders trying to save those children 
and the killer was threatening them with a knife to prevent them from rescuing his own children. Now that is a level of malevolence that absolutely obliterates any good bloke snaps Mm -hmm. story. No good bloke does that. No good bloke ever does that. Now added to that, the police behaviour immediately afterwards was what it it wasn't bad behavior necessarily what it was was exposing the way police think and the way police have been taught so the way police think about these types of killings has always been that it's a crime of passion that he's a loving father loving husband blah blah and then for some reason he snapped now that is that is a false paradigm we now know it's a false paradigm and so when we saw a police officer standing up there and saying we are investigating to work out if this is a domestic violence incident or if this is a case of a husband being driven too far that's what they said that is what the police said the policeman was stood aside from his position. That's incredible. My presentation at the conference is called Driven Too Far and we'll be looking at that and why that is not a, par- that is not a paradigm that has any usefulness at all because nobody is justified in killing innocent children and an innocent woman for anything. It was certainly horrific. The work you're doing is giving hope to people that are out there. And like you said, two, three people a week coming forward That's to try and get... For those the, risk assessments, yeah. correct? I mean, the other thing is I don't actually feel helpless. In the first couple of weeks I did, but once I had those tapes, those first 20 tapes, I, I asked permission and some of those women were willing for me to use those to help get law reform and I sent them to the opposition, not to everyone, a politician who was very senior. And I said, have a listen to this, see what you think. Now, he's listening to all the coercive control stuff, like all of that was crimes. They're saying yes to it all. It's horrific. They've almost, they've only just narrowly escaped being murdered and they're saying, I can't get a DVO. And they're going, this is nuts. We've got to legislate. Now, so within four weeks of Hannah dying, The opposition in Queensland had heard those tapes, talked about it and agreed we must criminalise coercive control. So that's that's actually the quickest law reform I think I've ever got promised. So that happened in late March of 2020, last year, and then the state election was coming up in October and because the opposition had made this promise to the electorate, the government had to match the promise before the election. So on the 6th of October, they promised, we'll do it too. So by the time we got to the election, both sides of the Queensland government had promised to criminalise coercive control. You might think job done, but it wasn't job done because we actually have to really nail down what is that legislation going to be. So the Queensland government formed a task force to look into that. 
So I wanted to put, pack all the stuff up that I had ca- gathered over this time, give it to them to think about. And so when I was doing that, I thought I better get some literature on domestic violence. So off I trot to the, to the academic literature, looking up coercive control in Australia. There was nothing there. The cupboard was very bare. And so I asked an academic in the field, because it's not my field, am I stupid or is there nothing there? She goes, well, there's nothing much there at all. And that's for the simple reason that if someone wants to interview people who are at risk of being killed, university ethics panels are very unlikely to let them do it because obviously that's a dangerous thing to do. So she said, not only is it not there, but it's not going to be there either. So I thought, well, actually, we need to be able to make evidence-based policy. We need to ask these questions. We need to get them answered. Journalists can ask any question on any day of the week, so let's just do that. So a friend and I, who, a friend of mine who's a barrister, who understands how to use SurveyMonkey and make quite complicated surveys. So I use the same UK legal guidance. Yep. So this is all international peer-reviewed research. It's the law in Britain. Yes. So these are all questions that people are asked all the time. So that's, a pro- that's not a problem. So we ask those questions. We ask the eight stages. We ask a few questions about did you go to the police? What happened there? Did you go to family court? What happened there? Etc., and we've had 700 participants in that survey this year. So there are two key findings of this National Domestic Violence Survey, which is that victims who report are not adequately protected and victims who don't report remain at risk. So that's, that's a problem, basically. We pretty much all know what coercive control is. It's a strategic pattern of behaviour designed to exploit, control, create dependency and dominate. The victims are micromanaged every day. Their space for action and potential as a human being is limited and controlled by the abuser, initially by love bombing gaslighting, isolation, economic control, financial control, rules and regulations. These are made-up rules and regulations, such as... So one, one of the women I interviewed said her husband had a 48-hour rule. And I'd, What's the 48-hour rule? She's, he said, she's, <laughs> she must have sex with him every 48 hours or Assaulted. else. Yeah. Yeah. These... These are summary rules that he makes up for her to obey and if she doesn't obey, she gets punished for not obeying the rules which he makes up. So these are the sort of things. So these are not normal people. No. So it's more more than financial, isn't it? Because it's one thing to control bank accounts but then emotions, social, like who they see, is that right, where they go? Yes, everything. Yeah. So if you look at some of the convictions of people for coercively controlling women in the UK, they've actually jailed people for procuring a suicide. In Australia, we don't. If someone suicides, oh dear, there's a suicide. But if there is evidence that he has been texting her every half hour saying, kill yourself, go on, go on, kill yourself, jump off the mm. cliff or whatever it is, he, can, he will go to jail for that. In the UK? In the UK. 
But not here. But not here. Oh, wow. Did that shock you when you were, do- like when you were looking that, at those differences? Because you would assume that that would be quite obvious. That it's not okay. No. It's and not that, okay. And that they've had... A- but it's not a direct crime Is that right? in Australia. So yeah. that's, that is why the move is on and, and it's a fairly widespread, strong move now to find a way to criminalise this type of behaviour and make it a crime for which people can be punished. So there was another one who was jailed for making his girlfriend eat 52 cans of tuna a week and work out something like 12 hours a day so that she would look like Kim Kardashian. (laughs) Oh, my God. What we also found was that 67% of victims did not report to police. Now, this means that we have to find another way to address domestic violence because Mm. if 67% of victims are not reporting... That is not a workable solution. What we asked them was, why didn't you report? 27% said, we did not realise that non-physical abuse was domestic violence. And that is exactly what Hannah said. I didn't know that non-physical abuse was domestic abuse. And what he, and even when the parents said to him they didn't like the way he treated Hannah, His reply was always, I never hit her. He always had the comeback. If they had understood, oh, yes, but you've controlled her, everything she does. Would most people know that? I guess friends and family probably would know that. Is that right in that instance? They didn't. Okay, they didn't know that. They tried. They tried everything they knew, but they still didn't succeed in getting enough protection for her. But he was a. He was a pretty nasty customer, as we saw later on. Other answers to this, 41% of people said the reason why they didn't report the abuse was they feared that it would lead to an escalation of the abuse. 21% said they were frightened the offender would harm the children. 35% said they didn't think the police would be able to help or respond. 5% said the offender had tried to kill me, and even then they did not go to police. So what we have here is a breakdown in law and order, and that is not okay. We also have, coming through the police service, the paradigm of the crime of passion still, and that is because these perpetrators are very, very good at grooming everybody else around the victim to not see what they're doing. And what we see here from the Queensland Domestic and Family Violence Death Review and Advisory Board, that almost half of the female homicide victims in Queensland from 2015 to 2017 had been wrongly labelled as the perpetrator before they were murdered. So in all of these cases, almost half of the cases, the perpetrator had persuaded the police that they were the victim and that the victim was the perpetrator until they killed them. It's cunning, isn't it? Do you think that's a police at fault there or the the story and the the perpetrator, the real perpetrator playing the games? The game. Yeah. Yeah. The police are getting up to speed. I've been training the police by using the results of this survey to help them to understand what's really happening out there in the jungle 
because if they go to a domestic violence incident, they are not aware and they don't they have not been taught until I get to them that they need to not look at that incident, whatever that is, they need to ask, how was his relationship before this one? Was he coercively and controlling in that relationship? Did he threaten to kill anyone? Did he find you fast? Did he yeah. get you into a quick relationship? Did he demand demonstration of commitment? Did he then become possessive and jealous? You've got to ask those questions. Mm. Now, that does not take long. And in this survey, we find that only 5% of our survey victims did not identify with those questions. 95% of them did. So as soon as we get yeses to those questions, we know we're, we're dealing with a case where yeah. this person is at risk. It's very, very simple. It sticks out. That's out of 700 people, 95%. Yep. Fit with all that criteria. Correct. This is the first survey in Australia to do this, so that's why it's so important to do yeah. it. What, what has been standing out to me anecdotally, and I didn't know whether it would stand extending in a, in a survey, what I was seeing was a lot of male gold diggers. What the survey found was that 47% of the victims had completed a tertiary degree or a postgraduate university degree. So almost half of them, so that's mm. very high compared with the pop general population, which is only about 10% or something. So these yeah. people are picked on as the victims because they are smart. They have good jobs. They have money. They have assets of their own. Mm. They're women, right, but they are well-educated. 50% of the men who are the predators did not complete year 12 or did complete year 12 and no other training, not even a trade-based qualification. So then we looked at the eight stages. We've, we've discussed that a fair bit already. Yeah. Stage one is the previous controlling relationship. Stage two is did the relationship begin quickly? Was it initiated by him? Did he ask for a demonstration of commitment very early and then become possessive or jealous? Now, as you can see there, the 6% say none of those. So this applies to 94% mm. of the sample. Stage five is when things get serious, and that's because the victim decides she has to get away. Now, this is where the offender will either let her go or do what the researchers call change the project. So instead of trying to control her, trying to get her back, he will say, he will realise, I can't get her back and I'm not letting her leave, therefore I will kill her. This decision to kill is called changing the project and once he makes that decision, which we can't see inside his head, but he can carry it out, within days or weeks, and most of them are carried out quite quickly. And if you see the case of Hannah, it was 50 days. So it's during this time that the victims absolutely need police protection. So the key findings about coercive control, what does it really look like and how are the victims affected? If anybody knows anyone in these types of situations, 
This is what you will most commonly see. 89.6% of them, so 9 out of 10, the offender will call their partner demeaning names such as worthless, ugly, stupid, fat, etc. 9 out of 10. 89%, so 9 out of 10 close enough again, will isolate the victim from their family and friends. Try to break them apart, break their relationships apart, mm. not want to see them for, for whatever reason. 88% will also monitor how this partner spends all of their time with apps and spyware, etc. 84% of our victims in this survey said the offender began exerting control soon after securing their commitment. 81% said they used physical violence, including hitting, strangling, sexual assault, threatening with weapons, punching, scratching, or biting, or any combination thereof. Mm. 80% of the offenders controlled where the victim goes, who they see, and what they wear. So these are very high levels of control. It stands out, doesn't it, when you look at these stats? You're thinking, oh, this is obvious. Mm-hmm. There's another group which I've called high levels. So 75% controlled the family's money. 75% had threatened to kill themselves, their partner, their children, and all the pets. That's quite a high number. Mm. Three out of four victims. If someone says to you, he's threatened to kill himself if I leave, or kill me, or the kids, or the pets, that that is a serious issue. It needs police intervention and protection. 72% said he had threatened to harm the partner. 71% said they made rules for the partner and enforced the rules by punishing her for disobedience to the rules. 70% of offenders had damaged property such as children's toys, kitchen gear or the car. 63% experienced an increase in the frequency and severity of abuse or stalking after the separation. So this, this is really important. It doesn't look very much on the page, but every time someone goes to court about domestic violence, if the judge or the magistrate says, are you living under the same roof? Are you separated? If they say, we're separated, they go, well, there's no domestic violence then, is there? But what we see is in more than half the cases, so 63%, there's actually an increase in the frequency of violence and the severity. So that's, that's where our legal system needs to get up to date on that. Yeah. 62% deprived the victim of their basic needs such as food, clothes, shelter or sleep. I find this one personally quite shocking. I've spoken to women who've been thrown out of the house, for example, when it's very cold or snowing outside with the kids and and made to sleep in the car for some minor infraction, like dinner might have been late or something like that. Yeah. It's, it's a cruel, it, it's, it's actually quite cruel. 62% control the victim's work and hours of work, whether that's to work more or to work less. It's, so, I mean, the stats blow your mind, don't they? Like it, it, but even the things that you're saying there, I mean, you think, God, who would do that? Who would do that? But... Unless you ask these questions, it's actually shocking how common this obviously is. It's shockingly common, but it's not spoken about because every single one of them is isolated. Everyone is isolated, told they're crazy, etc. But they're all experiencing the same thing. 
So I haven't put many graphs in here, but this one I have, the threats to kill, breaking down that 75% we spoke about, 57% of offenders had threatened to kill themselves. That's quite a high rate of threatened suicide. 16% had threatened to kill the kids, 23% the pets, and 44% the partners. I think those are quite high numbers. And I've now that I've alerted the police to this, this is the Vulnerable Persons Unit in Brisbane South where I presented the findings of the survey a little while ago when we still only had 500 at that time. But I thought it needed to, to start getting rolled out to people who need to know. And now that the police understand this, they are asking more questions, they are using a better risk assessment and it's changing the way they police. They are actually able to do more protective work than they could do before because they have more information to do it with. So this is, there is, act, this is actually a happy story. You mentioned there there was 57% have said they kill himself or herself. I mean, is it a small portion that it's the female? Yes, about 1%. Is that right? Mm. Yeah, incredible. I was going to ask. I was intrigued to see what that number is it, was. Is it he said, she said, in the UK where coercive control is a crime and has been for several years, the conviction rates are just over 99% male convictions, just under 1% female convictions. Is that right? Wow. So there's still a lot of he said, she said yeah. and fighting in Australia, but Stats. once it's actually dealt with, uh, we can see that it's actually a male thing. It's yeah. a gendered type of violence. Mm. Now, the, you are waiting for the good news. The good <laughs> news is right here, and that is that one of the lowest types of control that these offenders do or which they're capable of doing is preventing the victims getting access to medical treatment for themselves or the children. So if you look at if you think about the scenario, let's say he's whacked someone and injured someone and the kid's got a broken arm or whatever, and he doesn't want her to take it to the hospital and prevents her from now forty six percent of these victims have said they have been prevented from getting access to medical treatment for themselves or the children. However, that is the lowest in the whole survey. And the good news is 54% mm. can get medical treatment and the others may get medical treatment on different occasions, right? Yeah. So what we have here and what has emerged out of this is the good news and that is that if the front line of domestic violence was actually a medical intervention, it could work. Now, it's just happened that there's a few doctors and nurses who've been following what I've been doing and they've actually started using the risk assessment uh-huh. as doctors and nurses in emergency. And so when someone comes in with anything that could be suspected as being domestic abuse, they run the risk assessment they run all those 25 questions, the eight stages. And when a doctor makes a clinical finding that it's too dangerous for the person to go home, they can't send them home. 
they must admit them to the hospital and the social workers must come in and find crisis accommodation. They can't be sent back to a dangerous place. What normally happens and why we understand it is, let's say a, a little old lady who lives by herself falls and breaks a hip. Mm. She, once she's stabilised, she can't be sent home because she can't look after herself. Yeah. It's not safe. So she must be diverted to be looked after by someone. Gotcha. Now, these women are in the same situation. Mm. They can't go to a place where they're at risk of being murdered. No. So the doctors will divert them to the okay. social workers, the psychologists, yeah. etc. The other thing that's quite elegant about this is that anecdotally I've seen that many of these offenders have an undiagnosed mental health condition which they've never had treated or an addiction or something like that. And if they come into the hospital trying to get her, they can quickly be apprehended and treated for whatever that problem actually is. Yeah. So right. there is a there is a, a double yeah. um, benefit here in the victim getting the help they need and the perpetrator yeah. actually getting the medical help that they need instead of avoiding it. Well, so that's okay. why this one's got a little light bulb on it. The next bit of this that we asked people was, if you did report to police, what did you want? 65% said, I wanted the abuse to stop. Now, you would have thought that's a pretty simple request. However, as we did find out, that didn't really happen for most people. 28% they wanted a temporary domestic violence protection order. 21% said they wanted the police to arrest and charge the offender. So it's only one in five wanted some actual police action on that, 24.6. So almost a quarter of them wanted the police to investigate or charge the offender for breaching an existing domestic violence order. So a quarter of them are only calling police for a breach of an existing order. Wow. And what happened when the police came? 42% of cases the police sorted domestic violence order. In a lot of cases the police referred the person to a domestic violence service, that's 35%. And disturbingly, which is why I point out this slide, is that 32% of our victims said the police did nothing. Now, if people who have been threatened with being killed, etc., etc., as we've been talking about before, go to the police and a third of them walk away without having Any anything action. done, that is not acceptable. It's simply not acceptable. No. And it makes sense of this slide, which is we asked the people, how satisfied were you with the police response to your report of abuse? And 50% said they were dissatisfied or very dissatisfied. Yeah, right. Now, this is not a, a bash up on police. The police have had training and, and a way of understanding the world that is not actually a true paradigm. Jane Monkton Smith's eight stages was only reported last year. So this is all very new for all of us. It's going to take the police some time to assimilate what this research 
means for policing, for the way we understand domestic abuse, and we still don't have criminalisation of coercive control. It's still not a crime in this country. But what we can do is call authorities to account when we see someone who really needs protection, we can let them know in writing and we can see them actually do the job. We know they can. With the existing legislation we have, if we explain it well enough, they will do it. So it's a process so issue. It, it's a process. I, I still think personally that these types of offending should be a crime because there is a 100% correlation with homicide. And if you know the cause of someone being killed is this, the only way to stop that is to make that antecedent behaviour a crime. So the task force has done their task forcing. Okay. They've listened to victims and lawyers and groups and okay. all of that. And Margaret McMurdo, who is the chairman of it, she's an appeal court judge. Yes. She is reporting back to the parliament this week and her report will set out what they looked at, what they heard, what they found, what they recommend okay. that the government should do. So not far off, hopefully. There's, there can be a long distance between a report to a government and action. And action. And the action may not follow the recommendations because it can be affected by political will. Is it a challenge of resources with the police? And I mean, if they have these 700 people, 95% of them, if they actually you know, wanted to help them and could help them, places where they send them to, where they keep them safe, I mean, do they have that sort of resources, the cost of that? Because... There's a number of elements there, isn't there, to really consider? Yes, what we need is a pilot study and I've already spoken to this group of police and I've also sp- and they're willing to do it. What we need is a study to go out with these police mm-hmm. to different groups of victims, so victims who are what we call repeat callers. So they might get the police to come over every week or so or every time he's drunk or whatever it is and, they, and 95% of police call-outs are to the same people. Yeah. So there's a huge amount of repetition where nothing gets done because the police don't believe they can do anything about a civil dispute and it's true, they can't. Yes. However, the issues are not being addressed. So... We need to find out if going in there and doing a risk assessment, short circuit, short circuits, all that repetition. If we can go in once, do a risk assessment, and instead of visiting you every fortnight, we fix it Mm. right now. That will actually save a huge amount of police time. The other thing is going in on a first call out, doing a thorough risk assessment the first time someone calls, bolting on support for the perpetrators because if the perpetrators are only just learning this now. Now, this is a slippery slope for someone. Let's say the person is being controlling for a reason that is not nefarious at all. They might want things a particular way. They might have particular rules in the house. They might want some control of the money. They might want 
whatever it is they want, they would probably have no idea that this was the top of a slippery slide Mm. leading to murder. And if someone said, hang on, mate, do you really want this to go down there? Yes. It's the easiest way to get off a slippery slide is to back off right at the top before you go down the slippery slope. Getting them help earlier, creating that awareness and giving them the education around what could be ahead if they don't do something about this. Some of those things, you know, a lot of those things you read out, you think, oh, who would do that? Who would do that? Who would control where someone goes and have all these controls over where she goes or what she does? And but I mean, it's it's obviously happening underneath our underneath their noses. We don't even don't even know. From all this that we have now, do you think this framework will be a big part of? I mean, we're already seeing it. You said in hospitals and stuff as well. But is this do you very think- early days? Uh, but the Victorian Justice Department is well ahead in this. The Victorians did a Royal Commission into Domestic Violence some years ago and they believe that they're well ahead of the pack on this and they have started independently looking at the possibility of a medical intervention being best practice for initial intervention. Now, once I gave... For the victims, sorry? For the victims, correct. So once I rolled out this these survey results. We did an online thing because they're all locked down in Victoria. Uh, but I did a, a thing presenting all the findings of the national survey to the domestic violence unit in the Justice Department. And when I explained to them about this opportunity for a medical intervention, they were very excited because they said, that's what we're thinking of. And because they can see that that's the lowest level of control it's the easiest way for anyone to get in. So it's, it's really only very early discussion days, but I'm also talking with a nursing academic to see if we can, because nurses already have procedures of domestic violence assessment. When someone comes in with a strangulation injury, for example, pretty obvious that there's question marks about domestic violence and those nurses already do a risk assessment on okay. domestic violence on those cases. So they're already doing it. They're prepared to do it in a situation where the person is separated from the offender because they're in hospital. Now, if we can expand the number of patients that those nurses do that with to anybody who's in this type of situation, we can just add an assessment into what is already part of their work. Process, yeah. Yeah. If we look at the states, how are they all going? I mean, are they all particular states worse than others or are Victoria well ahead? We have done the stats on that and for the, we have most information on Queensland, New South Wales and Victoria and they're pretty much the same. We have slightly lower numbers in the other states, but the trends are pretty much all the same. And what I found really surprising was that when we pulled the first 100 stats, first 100 responses, because we were excited to find out if there would be a trend and there were such strong trends that it was quite frightening. And I thought, well... Maybe the reason for these very strong trends 
of, for example, the number of people who threatened to kill, etc. I thought, well, maybe that's because when I was speaking at my fashion week to a room full of DV victims and they filled it out, or some of them filled it out, we would be seeing a very strong trend. And I thought, well, this is going to become less of a strong trend. Yes. It will dissipate once we get to maybe 400. So we pulled it at 400 again. And instead of dissipating, the trend was actually stronger. It was awful. And then I did the presentation to the police after that. And then once I was ready to do the submission, by then we had 500. So, okay, let's do it again. And I thought, well, maybe now these trends will start to weaken a bit. And they were stronger again. And when I was punching the numbers on that one, it was actually quite distressing. Mm. And I had tears rolling down my face because I thought it couldn't be worse, but it was worse. Such a new area for for Australia, isn't it, to actually talk about this and have something get done about it. Do you feel like if you look to the future in the next year, two years, three years, do you have hope that we'll be further down the track and we'll be able to actually start or continue? Obviously, you're already starting to help people at the moment, but I mean, is that is that what's driving you to, to, to know that this will come in effect? It will be legislation at some point in states because it's all state-based at the moment. What's the hope? Yeah, it is. The criminal code is state-based legislation in every state. So it is quite important that we get consistent legislation across the states and COAG needs to be involved. The feds need to be involved. The feds are already talking about making a consistent definition of coercive control. Now, that's really important and it will help with the interface between the family court and the state courts because the federal courts and the federal decisions of any judge will overweigh and take precedence over anything in a state level. So you might have, for example, and this is where victims find it very, very confusing, they might get a domestic violence order that says this perpetrator is not to come within 100 yards of you. Mm -hmm. And then the family court, which is federal, will say, and you will go to his place every Saturday and drop the kids off. (laughs) She's going, what? Doesn't make any sense. That the, the systems don't yeah. support each other to protect children and that's really wh- why we need this to happen. And, and if you look at, in the case of Hannah and her ex and the children, one of the things that he did before the killing but during those 50 days was to take one of the children and run interstate with her. Now, because there was no family court ruling, he was at law entitled to take her away. The police didn't chase her. The police didn't issue an Amber Alert. They did nothing. Now, what we understand from the overseas research literature is that the taking of a child, even when the person has legal custody of it, in a situation like that, is a homicide flag. It's a homicide flag. And we are not even recognising that. So the children are being used as pawns in the game. Yeah. So if you can understand the psychology of what the offender was doing there, he was saying to her, to Hannah, I can take the children 
and I can do what I like with them. You can't do anything now about this it. Is, mm. This is either him trying to get her back under his roof. Mm. It may have been trying to pull her, reel her back in. But when that didn't work, he's changed the project yeah. and killed them all. So I think we need to be far more aware Alert, yeah. of this juxtaposition between state and federal and really understand where there is coercive control, where the dangers are, and recognise those dangers. Obviously, we're going for double the time, but, I mean, it's been so intriguing and interesting just listening to you talk and explain, explain not only your background but also the in-depth things that you're doing with coercive control and the amazing studies that's already progressively over in Britain and, and the work that you've done to try and help set a framework here in Australia. It's, it's incredible and begs the question, why isn't it already in, in play? Because it seems so obvious that someone doing those things is not of the right frame of mind and has some sort of other motives at hand. Governments do work at a certain pace, which is yeah. pretty slow. Journalists can be quite agile and public opinion can be quite agile around a particular topic. And I think because we've had a lot of media over years about the terrible homicide rates of women being killed yeah. every week, it means that when there was, there was fertile soil for this debate to happen, there was fertile soil for an answer to come lobbing out of somewhere, as in, here it is, we don't have to spend 15 years working out what to do, they've already done it and they've worked it out, here's the solution. In London, where they just implemented the risk assessment, they managed to reduce domestic abuse by 58%. Fair income. Now, yeah, so, that, so there's domestic abuse and there's intimate partner homicide. Obviously, yeah. all of that matters, but the vast bulk of that is domestic yeah. abuse. That's incredible. And if you can reduce that by more than half in a short time just by people understanding and that's, what's, yeah. that's what I believe will be a very big benefit here, apart, aside from all the law reform, is that if people understand it's not okay to control other people, what they eat, when they sleep, no. where they go, who they see, et cetera, et cetera, if people understand that that's dangerous behaviour, they won't stand for it. So I am confident Queensland and New South Wales are ahead of the game when it comes to legislation. Yes. But uh, that hasn't stopped me sending all my national survey results to all the attorneys general. That's good. It's all on their desk. Whatever state you're in, if you're interested, you can tell them. There's a survey findings on your desk. Have a look at that. They'll get all this information. Yes. And they can see what Queensland and New South Wales are doing. It's all progressing as fast as it will. I just have two questions left. One is, what have you got coming up for yourself? I mean, you're following this all the way through to see it get implemented, continuing on with the surveys and trying to get more data. Is that where the focus for you is in the immediate future? The immediate is writing up the journalistic part of this for one of the best journalism journals in the world called Journalism Practice. Yes. Because it's an unusual one from the point of view of getting law reform quite quickly and large thing, which a large change in cultural behaviour and cultural understanding of a social issue uh, and also writing it up in a nursing journal 
because it's nurses who I believe are actually going to be feet on the ground with this. I think police will get there eventually, but they can't really do a lot until we get the legislation through. The ones who are up and listening and trying to be better are improving their risk assessments and, and that will make a difference. But I've not heard, and I'm happy to talk to anyone, if, if there is any police group or region or station yes. who wants to understand this, I'm willing to talk to them on Zoom and take them through the whole thing so that they really understand what it's about. And, and we know from the police have already done it, that it's changing their understanding, improving their understanding and improving the way they police and making people safer. So from my point of view, that's really worthwhile doing. Win-win, yeah. No, that makes sense. We're also getting some applying for grants. There's a, a huge amount of research. You only have to look at every one of those 70 questions and it can spark another research project. So we are looking at some research now to to do several different things and and as soon as and I'm happy any research dollars I've done all this for 0 dollars I've just spent the last 18 months just doing it because it has to be done I can't afford to do it for nothing anymore yeah. so I'm trying to get some research funding if anybody knows of any research funding they can throw at me we can use it all That was my last point is how can people get in touch with you just Google me. Yep. My name, number, email is all, all publicly available and that's because whistleblowers have to be able to find me. So yeah. I have to be very brave on the internet. Yes. The Wild West. Yeah, it certainly is. Listen, Amanda, I mean, congratulations on the work you're doing. You've obviously put a lot of effort. So a big congratulations on that and I can't wait to hear more about what you're up to and we appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Thank you. Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au and be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.